Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge, get a fresh new start. MJ Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis, and it's actually cloudy but not snowing today in Westchester. It's going to be great. And we have John Yulstrap here and the author of Blue Fire. Oh, gosh, this book is so great. The original one, the first one is called Grimson Phoenix. You need to read that one first. And then you need to read this one. And an autumn's morning calm is shattered with an alarming cry, blue fire. The town's code phrase is for imminent danger. So good morning and welcome to MJ Network. I couldn't put this book down. It took me like two hours to read the whole thing. Well, good morning and thank you very much. It's a great way to start the day to hear words like that. Oh, I, I love it, and I've got about 20 people that want it, and I've announced it on all my shows, so there's a lot of people that said they were going to download the book, as I told them to. No, really. All right. <laughs> I'm getting really good at this. So what's the backstory? How do, you started with Crimson Phoenix, so tell everybody about that. And I thought that was really cool, the the code word blue fire. I figured maybe if I you know say it to people, I'll understand it's an emergency. And not send me any more book, whatever. So that that is really cool. So how did you come up with that? With the blue fire, as the, um, I think that within the construct of of uh, the book, which is set in a uh, in the aftermath mm-hmm. of a nuclear war that lasted eight hours and killed many, many thousands, millions, perhaps billions of people. But left, you know, at least that many still alive and, and trying to um, carve out a society. And it just occurred to me that I think you, in a situation like that where uh, your neighbors can become feral very quickly and mm. when, when people are, are hungry and sick and cold and scared, uh, violence is, is very close by. And Victoria Emerson has sort of brought order to this town called Ortho, West Virginia. It's a fictional place. It sits along the Kanawha River. And uh, part of the organization is to have a it's a militia of sorts, which means that everybody in the town is has pledged to defend each other and defend the town. And when that becomes threatened, either by human hazards or natural hazards, there's got to be a way to quickly spread the word and blue fire like any good code phrase, is something that no one would say out of context. Mm. So that's that's where Blue Fire comes from. Plus, I thought it made a really cool title. <laughs> it, it does, and it makes a really cool cover with blue, one of my favorite colors. And the flame is blue, too, so it really says it all. I like this, really good. And like I said, there's a whole bunch of people that want to read it. They're going to have to buy it themselves. Sorry. Good, um, good. They make wonderful gifts, too. 
Well, you know, that that's the other thing. What I do on Mother's Day, right before, I have a list of books that I tell people to buy for Mother's Day, too. So we have to do a Mother's oh. Day promotion. Yeah, you got to do something, really. So the first scene in the book, really scary. How did you create the first attack scene? And what alert! I love Victoria. She's so cool. Alerted her and her team that this man was not sent by the army. I mean, because so many people would buy it because he's wearing a uniform, they wouldn't know. They would just get blindsided. Well, in this case, it's um, the alarm goes out that a flotilla, essentially, which is a of of pleasure craft, really, with, with no engines or floating, down the river, and one of Victoria's boys, Luke. Um, they, they point a gun at him, and that's what triggers him to come, you know, to, to alert on the, on the blue fire. And when they arrive, they uh, purport themselves to be, in fact, they are uh, Army National Guard, elements of Army National Guard units that have, mm-hmm. have survived. The reality of, of any war plan, uh, kind of switching out of fiction into, into the real world, mm-hmm. military facilities are all hammered. If, if it goes to a full nuclear war. Um, there are multiple warheads that are targeted on every military facility in the United States, as well as in Russia and in France and everywhere else. Um, so these, these people have no real leadership anymore. There's, they, they're the army, but they haven't spoken to a commander in quite some time. And they take it upon themselves to declare martial law and say that they, mm. uh, they have a right to forage through ortho. Well, that's not even what martial law is about. So that, that clues Victoria into this is a bad thing. And she says, no, you, you go away. And some hotheads uh, go to guns and it turns into a, a, a gunfight and they, and they run off. That kind of sets the stage for other things that happen uh, through, the, through the rest of the book. It just occurred to me, you know, it's when the, the Victoria Emerson series – and I want to say this up front because it's, I don't think, you, you correct me if, if I'm wrong, I don't think that this is a dark series. It's obviously got a dark background because, you know, a bunch of mm-hmm. people have been killed in war. But it's really about survival and hope and love and family right. and community and all the things that threaten those and that have to be, uh, have to be driven away. So, you know, well, Victoria is um, put in the position of trying to hold this town together and trying to keep people at bay. And what do you do when imagining a world like this? Uh, there are no police, right? There are no courthouses. Uh, there's really no military as we've come to know it because military has to report to civilian command. <clears throat> and if you don't know who the civilian command is, then it's just a bunch of guys with guns. So um, all of these come to play with, within the book. And you asked why that was the first scene. Part of it is to make that point that when government uh, restores order or uh, provides the structure for order, but when they're not there and the infrastructure for, for maintaining that order no longer exists, everybody's on their own and your uniform really doesn't matter. You don't have, you, your uniform does not give any authority over my family uh, just because you say it does. And that's the kind of thing that I wanted to bring in early in, in the book. Because I know a lot of people start uh, mm-hmm. a series in the second, you know, not, they don't read it in order. There, there are a lot of folks who are going to be attracted to Blue Fire, which got a stunning review in the New York Journal of Books. Um, 
they're going to they're going to start there. So you got to establish. I have to establish the world pretty quickly so that they don't get lost. And uh, I, I think Blue Fire exists as a standalone. There are details that you're you're not going to understand about what led to the war and, and, and all of that. But it doesn't matter in Blue Fire. Uh, but obviously, you want to read the series in order that. Thing, I think there's more color and more fullness out of out of the story. I think they need to read the first one so they understand what really happened. And I wonder what would really happen if it really happened today in this world. Well, this pandemic, I often feel like they did really happen because there's so many people out there just taking matters into their own hands, protesting, people getting killed, killed in school. It just bothers me. Every little every little five minutes I get another email from New Zealand telling me something else that happened. I don't even want to hear it anymore. So if you read the first book, you'll get a, a handle on what the world looks like and how people that don't know each other have to survive together in a world that's like prehistoric, you might say. It's different. Yeah, well, that's the... the the paradox of the prepper community. Um, yeah. and I think people, I don't see people use the word prepper as a pejorative and I don't, um, I sort of am one, yeah. not sort of a low level one, but I think it's important to be prepared for <clears throat> disaster. Yeah. Uh, you look at the, you mentioned COVID. Um, we were very close on the East coast anyway, uh, to having the entire food distribution network breakdown. And mm-hmm. days away from that, and fortunately, you know, leadership got us through and and, and it got put back together. But you, people were shooting each other over toilet paper. What are they going to do when it's the last bottle of baby formula or diabetes medicine yeah. or heart medicine? Uh, it's it's going to get ugly. So the prepper community is all about having those things, having independent stores of, of what you need. But where most of it stops in mind, and again, where does the series come from? The prepper community is about protecting me and my family. And you, mm. so you have a bunker, you know, however far you want to take it. You live in, in the woods in Idaho. But sooner or later, you're not, you're not the only survivor. And sooner or later, you're going to have to interact with society again. And then what's that society going to look like? Well, we are social animals, and we've got to have to put something together. And you're going to have the, the bullies, the, the, the thugs, who take it upon themselves to live out their dream of, of taking other people's stuff. And then you're going to have the principled folks like Victoria who mm. are able to find the middle ground between uh, violence and reason. And where reason doesn't work, well, perhaps violence is the only alternative. But Victoria, I think, I've crafted her to be one of those natural leaders that I, I have certainly had several in, in my lifetime who they might not wear – I was a firefighter for 15 years, so we didn't wear stars, mm-hmm. we wore bugles. Um, so the real leader might or might not have all the bugles on his collar. It could be some low-level driver who just – people follow because they do. And, um, and Victoria is one of those. She's an outsider to the town of Ortho, and people listen to her. And she understands how fragile her hold on command is. She hasn't been elected to anything, nor does she want to be. Yeah. She's willing to give this job to anybody else. But nobody else wants it because she's doing it well. 
no one's going to want it anyway because they're afraid that they won't do it as, as well or something will happen. So you mentioned the bunker and Solara, and who was hidden there and why? How did you create that? Well, that's real, actually. The not, not Oh, Solara. that's even better. Um, there was, for many years, it began in the Eisenhower administration, up until the Washington Post revealed the secret in 1994, um, there was a U.S. government relocation facility that was located in the uh, actually a wing of the Greenbrier Hotel in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. And it was the place, it was designed as the evacuation center for the Senate and the House in the event of, of well, certainly nuclear war, but what other catastrophic thing could happen. The president and the executive uh, branch were taken to another location, and um, I'm actually not sure what they do with the Supreme Court, the third branch. But um, the rules of the bunker at um, the Greenbrier was the members of Congress could go with one staff member, no family. So if you consider mm-hmm. there's 535 members between the House and the Senate, and each of those bring the staff yeah, that was scary. over a thousand. And, and so that actually exists. And for me, you know, I, I, I'm sort of a, a, a bilateral, I, I don't write politics, but I don't particularly have a warm space for politicians in my heart. Mm-hmm. And um, there was something that rubbed me the wrong way about at a time when our leaders, our elected leaders are expecting millions of, of casualties in a nuclear attack. They grant themselves a reinforced concrete bunker with a limitless supply of food and fresh water and electricity mm. and all that to, to keep the government intact, which then begs the question, what is the government? You know, if, if it's not those people, yeah. they're not the government. The government are, is, is the people, and they're all getting burned up. So uh, the, the events that happen in the annex, which is what I call the, the, the new bunker in um, – the Hilltop Manor Resort, and also in West Virginia, uh, it's it's kind of a reflection of what once was, and actually I'm confident still is. I just don't know where, and I mm-hmm. and I hope we don't know where. We shouldn't know where. No, well, I'll tell you when you had the two political parties in there, and then the way they were treating the president and all of them, I was like, oh my god, unbelievable. And then of course, what happens to one of them, we won't say. The interactions are so typical. They were so realistic, it was unbelievable. So how did you create that, and who is Johnson? Um, Scott Johnson is the the, the leader. Okay, this is also from reality. I don't like him at all. The the bunker, the real bunker in uh, White Sulphur Springs in Greenbrier, the members of the House and Senate, did their work there, but they did not run the bunker. The bunker was run by an outside consulting company that was no nothing like the Solera that I present. In fact, they're, <laughs> yeah. they're competent and capable people. But within my fictional world, you know, they're the guys, the folks who run the bunker are the ones who have the guns, and they're the ones who control who eats what, when, how much, where people sleep, um, when yeah. people sleep. So... Who's, I just think that's kind of an interesting uh, level of, of power. 
gets not elected at all. And within the story, within actually this came up in, in Crimson Phoenix, the the president is in the bunker because the elected president um, was killed in the war, as was the vice president. So the constitutionally, the presidency goes to the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who is there with the House and Senate. But he's got no staff. He's got, you know, it's, it's, what's he going to do? And there are other political, I don't want to get into all the, all the details, but there's a lot of animosity mm. between the two yeah. political parties, who go unnamed, by the way, quite intentionally. There's a majority and minority, um, so people can, people can choose their enemies. But um, I just, you know, and, and you, have, you have this group with all the best, most modern communications equipment in the world to put the government back on, on track. Well, who are they going to talk to? Who's going to hear them? All, everybody else is either dead. The electromagnetic pulse has gotten rid of all computerized equipment or anything with uh, uh, complicated circuitry. It's all been fried. So they can sit in their bunker and think lofty thoughts and, and assign money from the treasury to fix things, but there is no treasury. And what value is a piece of paper with a picture of a president on it? It has no value. So I get into the establishment of a new form of currency within ortho because in order to have, in order for Victoria to help the society get back on its feet, she has to find a way that people who have little or nothing have a means to get their hands on um, clothing and food and shelter and, and all of that stuff. So the, the book gets fairly deeply in, into how she does that as well. Oh, that was that was I'm not going to say how she does it, but that's clever, really clever, and and it sort of, sort of serves more than one purpose if they if they get what they need, which is in the form of uh-huh. reward for whatever they get. Yeah, it's definitely definitely really good. So we have the ortho team, and the two guys I love is Caleb and Luke. So tell us about them, and then we have her son Adam. I love Adam and Emma. They're on a different mission because his school was destroyed, but she doesn't know that. Yeah, anyway. Right. Well, Adam and uh, Caleb and Luke are Victoria's three sons. Um, her husband uh, was killed in, uh, in the sandbox in Iraq uh, before, mm. before any of the books start. So as a single mom, that's why – she ends up not going into the bunker because she wasn't going to go into the bunker without her boys. Yeah, so, that was clever. Um, and the the boys are uh, their childhood is gone in the construct of, of the story. Um, your Caleb, excuse me, Luke is fourteen, Caleb is sixteen, and Adam I think is eighteen. Um, so the obviously toddlers are toddlers. They're not they're puppies. They don't accomplish a lot. But once you're able to dig a hole or carry a gun or uh, mm. be useful, it's it's time to go and and, and time to do that. So in uh, in the case of Victoria's kids, they all rise to the occasion pretty well. And but there's also a lot of teenage angst that is is built into their responses. 
Adam, her oldest son, when the war started, was at a boarding school, military school, uh, quite some distance away from, from where uh, Victoria was. So as far as Victoria is concerned, uh, she doesn't know if he's alive or dead. He, she, there's actually mm. a scene in the book where um, she steadfastly maintains that, yes, he's alive. If, he's, if, if he were dead, then I would know. And um, so it, that, that, that's, that's the structure of her family. And she's got uh, Joe McRae is an Army major who is in charge of a two-person security detail that was taking her to the bunker that she decided not to go to. And he lost his family. They lived in the Washington area, so he's confident that his entire family, his wife and two daughters, are dead. And he kind of sets up, you know, this almost a caste system where he is he was assigned to protect Victoria, to take her to safety. And she decided to refuse the safety. And he was then away from his family when they were killed and is now a survivor uh, sort of by accident, by default. And uh, it's, I don't know, it was fun to write. Uh, none of that was planned, quite honestly. It kind of evolved while I was writing. And um, I like the way it's going. Oh, I love this one. I can't wait for the third one. There's going to be a third one, right? It will. I'm writing it now. It's called White Smoke. This is this is really good. Because <laughs> some of the ones I'm getting, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was really sad. They come upon, Adam and Emma come upon this little girl. So who is Lisa, and why did they take her with them? That was so sad. Well, it's, we've got to be careful here. Um, yeah. No spoilers. Uh, Lisa is a, is a brittle diabetic, and she yeah. was uh, visiting her, uh, her uncle for the weekend, when all of this happened, when the, when the war started, and she doesn't have insulin. And as Adam and Emma are his wife, not his wife, his girlfriend, pregnant girlfriend, um, yeah. are driving through the outskirts, you know, just sort of the hinterlands, people stop him. He's in a car. He's in an old Bronco that doesn't have, barely has an engine, let alone any circuit, circuitry in it. And um, they beg him to, the, her uncle begs Adam to take Lisa, who I believe is seven or eight years old, um, back to her family where they will have insulin for her. And um, Adam doesn't want to do it. It's a stupid thing to do. You know, it's the last thing you want to do is, is take on passengers. While, and this is, if you're in survival mode, the last thing you want to do is have more people to have to yeah. shepherd. But he can't, he can't leave her behind. So they they come along and and there there's story stuff that happens from that. But you know Adam is it's actually Emma his girlfriend that is is really strong on this. We have to take her, and um, and they do. And you know it's it's a it, it a lot happens that that revolves around Lisa and and that and that journey. Now we have another group of interesting people. This is like something was like fascinating. Every time I went into the bunker, it's like really interesting. So we have President Penn, and I wanted to give him a high five because he faces off with Johnson, which I thought was really clever. And then we have Strasky. Why did he he decided to see what was happening outside? So how did you create that? We're not going to tell anybody what happened, though. Right. 
Well, Penn Glendale is president of the United States. Scott Johnson is the head of Solara, which is the group that runs the, the bunker. Um, we're about 30 or 40 days, I think, um, into, into the, the story when um, we rejoin the president in, in, in the bunker. And there's a, a big contingent of people who, who understand that the world is suffering. They're not accomplishing anything worthwhile in the bunker, and they want to get back out with their constituents. And then there are others who say, no, 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 it's not safe for us to do that. We don't, it's, it's not fair to open things up and expose us to a hazard that our constituents are being exposed to. So that's a political infighting. And Scott Johnson has orders. He's got standing rules that say that those doors don't open up for at least 60 days. And to attempt to open them is, um, it's a shooting offense. I mean, you get shot on spot if, if you open up these big blast doors, the pressurized blast doors that are designed to keep all the, the nastiness outside and keep the inside clean. So um, the president, president's chief of staff, Arlen Strasky, um, says, I'll go. And through some manipulation and, and, and uh, bargaining, they decide to let him go out and look around. And, and that's, that's when that's the first time that the the official Washington, the government, gets eyes on what the situation really is outside. Well, and I'll just leave that bad. hanging as a teaser. We are, they they need to hang because you need to see it. You need to read it for yourself and decide who is right and who is not right. That's what I'm going to tell them. Now we meet another guy named Parsons. I didn't like this guy at all. And we meet Frank Roos, who encounters Parsons, who says he could take whatever he wants, even though, and then he sort of threatens mm-hmm. people. Parsons and Frank Roos? Roos. I there? didn't like Parsons at all. He's a nasty guy. Well, he is. He's the guy who's, who's uh, the hilltop manor where the, the yeah. bunker is hidden, uh, it's still a, it's a resort. It was not hit by any of the, yeah. The, yeah. the bombs. So people wander in there to, you know, it's a hotel. It's, it's a great place to get food, right? And Parsons mm-hmm. got there first. He's a, he's a former professional wrestler. Not that that matters to the story. Everybody has to be something. And um, he and, and his assembly of um, thugs, I guess, uh, make sure that they are fed with the stores from the freezer in the hotel and that others are not. You know, if you share, that's less, if, if I share, that's less for me. And mm. uh, you're on your own. You can, you can sleep on the lawn if you want. You can do whatever you want, but you, you can't get near the, the good stuff. Uh, so that's, that's uh, Roger Parsons. Now, Frank Rouse. Well, all I know is that there. it reminds me of real life because when they had the hurricane in September, my friend lives in uh, Fordham, on Fordham Road, and people just took whatever they wanted. They robbed all the stores, they robbed the, the grocery, they robbed the supermarket, they robbed the pharmacies, and people got hurt because they said, well, you know, I can take whatever's mine. That's what's really scary. Because it's it's not so much, so much fiction anymore, is it? It's like you know that could really happen. 
It's, it's, it's frightening. I'm hoping that's what resonates through as people yeah. read this, uh, read through this. I mean, God forbid, I don't, you know, <laughs> nuclear war is, is a big thing. But, um, yeah. you know, there are all kinds of disasters. If you live on, on the coast, you've got the hurricanes, you've got tornadoes. If you're in the Midwest, you've got forest fires. You've got all kinds yeah. of things that can leave you. Um, you know, if, if, if you don't have a freezer, provided you've got room enough for a freezer, you know, mm-hmm. don't just put the the steam and bag vegetables, the conveniences in there. Have some stuff that you can you can live off for a while. And if uh, electricity goes out, the freezer's going to go down. That food's going to spoil, and that's when you get a canned goods. Well, if you have canned goods, make sure you have a manual can opener. Open the cans. Uh, it's, it's a surprising uh, number of people haven't thought things through all that way. Uh, so, you know, ultimately people, and we do see it now. Um, yeah. It has nothing to do with the, with, with the books, but the, um, when people are empowered to steal or they think they have the right to do it, they're going to. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and I think we all have to face a question at some point is how far are we willing to go to, um, to protect ourselves? Uh, and I don't know. I can't answer that question for anybody else. And, and uh, I saw a video of, it was in New York of some guy just randomly punched the daylights out of a four-year-old as he walked by yep. on the street. And uh, <laughs> it, it was a mistake. Mama went, went after him, and, uh, and the bad guy lost ultimately. But, you know, that, what, kind of, what kind of monster does something like that? And obviously those kind of monsters are real. So if, if the book makes people think, what am I willing to do or what should I be willing to do or what should I learn to do? Uh, you know, it's, it's a point that's made within, within the stories that the, the stockbrokers and the money handlers, the uh, real estate mm. agents, folks who make really big bucks and live a very high life are virtually useless when it comes down to actual survival, unless they have skills hunting or gardening, you know, their the hobbies are, are supportive of it. But, you know, if, you, if you've been living the, the life of luxury and have never grown a tomato um, mm-hmm. or, you know, it, it's, you're, you're vulnerable. You're more vulnerable than those who have. All I know is that you said the, the manual, we have a manual can opener. Seriously? Good for you. It's more fun to use that than it is the electric one. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it's, it, it, well, I think it was my grandmother's a long time ago. That that and her chopper, we have that one also. Those are fun, but yeah, you know, you just never know when when the electricity is going to go out. Or um, there was one day when I went, we were going somewhere, and I we would if I would have left five minutes earlier, I would have been stuck in the elevator the day of the hurricane. Never even realizing oh, wow. when I came out, the lights were out. I said like, oh my god, what happened? I had no idea that the electricity went out for a couple of hours, not so much in the apartment, but outside in the hall, and the elevator died. And I said to my husband, that wouldn't have been too much fun because claustrophobia, and you just get stuck, and the phone in the elevator doesn't work, and oh, my God. So then we find, I like this guy, Adam and Emma, they arrive in ortho, but why hear the hearing? And how does this make Adam feel? That must have been hard on Victoria. Well, the, Adam and, and Emma, uh, because they have a working vehicle, 
mm-hmm. people, and they have traveled quite some distance, and they have encountered locals who, uh, it, it was a violent encounter in which um, Adam uh, killed one of, with good cause. And, you know, the word spreads very quickly among the family and friends of the local. They're, they're not going to mm-hmm. blame their friend. They're going to blame the outsider. So word has traveled that essentially in modern-day Bonnie and Clyde are driving around in, in a Ford Bronco. And it kind of spreads. As rumors do, it gets blown way out of proportion and beyond reality. And Adam is on his way down there. He has no idea that he's on his that he's heading toward his uh, you know where his where his family is, and he is essentially uh, stopped by the very security teams that uh, Victoria has put together, and they're pretty well pummeled and and because the, they're Bonnie and Clyde, everybody knows what these folks have done because the rumors are out there, and. Mm. Uh, so where is justice? That, you know, what, what, how do you prove that you didn't kill somebody? And uh, or how do you prove that you did? I mean, everybody knows that he did because that's what the rumors are. It's like, can we think of any modern, <laughs> modern stories where he absolutely knew the guy was guilty when he wasn't? Um, so, and again, I don't want to be spoilers, but it, it's, a, um, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for Adam. It's a challenge for his mom uh, and, and for his brothers. And uh, you know they've they're a very close family, and and what Victoria declares must be done is appalling. And you too must be done with Adam is appalling to his brothers, who you know this is this is your son. You can't you can't do this. So it's um, a lot of a few moral dilemmas in this story that made it a lot of fun to write, and I hope it makes it fun to read. It was. Let me tell you. Um, I mean, before I forget, tomorrow, I hope she remembers to dial the phone again, uh, Stella Terhart is there with Discovering Twins. It's a true story about the Holocaust and her family. Now, on Monday, I'm doing something that I haven't done in a long time, two interviews. The first one is Claire Douglas, just like us girls. And the second one, everyone, will be Carly Tappan. That's my niece, and her song dropped last Thursday. So Carly's going to come on and talk about her career, her journey, and we're going to hear her new song, Where You At. No, I'm serious, and it's really good. So I, I am excited that, that she's going to do that. On the second, we have uh, Wayward Assassin. On the third, we have Rita Mars. And on the eighth, none other than New York Times author Philip Margolin, The Darkest Place. And on the tenth, Andrea Kane at any cost. And that's just not even half of what's happening in March. And wait to hear about April. Jane Ann Krentz, or Amanda Quick, is coming on at the end of the month. That should be exciting because I've never interviewed her. So, what happens when blue fire is shouted again? And how do you handle another attack like that? That's that's scary. Well, that's the... That's the getting to the to the climax of of the story, and again, avoiding spoilers. Yeah. The um, yeah, those people that that Victoria offended, those military folks, uh, were humiliated by being driven off by a bunch of yahoos. They they assume the military folks, the the bad guys, mm. 
assume that these are a bunch of rubes, and it turns out the rubes have been very well trained and very well organized by Victoria and and uh, Major McRae and the, the whole whole structure. This is something that they had anticipated, and um, then the revenge comes uh, at, at the tail end of the story, and that's where kind of gets into. This is entirely different from the Jonathan Grave series that that I've been writing for the last 15 years. Um, but this is where a little bit of military tactics come in because you've, you've got the, the army officer. He is an army officer, uh, but what he doesn't have the soldiers. Uh, what he's got is a bunch of uh, uh, civilians who have been impressed into service to uh, to go and attack Wertha. And, mm. and it goes as it goes. And again, no, no spoilers. I didn't get – I only read one of your Jonathan Gray books. I don't know why. I read one a long time ago. I wanted more, but I like that this well, is I'm writing, fantastic. I'm, I'm, I'm under contract one? for number 15. That is really good. Been, thank you. That is really good. Between you and Vincent Zandri and Dick Belsky, you keep nice and busy. And I, I told I told Jim Nesbitt to get busy with, with his Roscoe because if he doesn't, you know, his his, his Bruno, what Bruno uh, Bruno book, uh, I'm getting bored. Right? You know, I haven't read Bruno in a while. And so, tell us about the new monetary system. How did you come up with this? And in order to get their goods and services, so what happens if a person or a family decides that they don't have to help out? Do they get thrown out of the community? No, they starve. There's um, this thought, when you this arrive bad, right? in, yeah, I mean, it's you had a chance. When they arrive in Ortho, they're given a week's worth of supplies, and they're uh, they're given a tent to sleep in, um, and or shelter of some sort. And there's a shanty town that has been built mm-hmm. that really is not well insulated, but it it gives you some level of shelter. And again, that's done by the building committee. So as a newcomer, there's always a spot for you on the building committee. There's always a spot for you on the security committee. And the security committee starts out with people, I call them tree frogs in the book. These are, these are folks that are out in the woods, in trees, in, in deer stands, tree stands, watching the roads and watching for uh, mm. people who are, who, who might pose a, a threat to the community. But, you know, once, you can't build a society if there's not some form of currency. And the, the greenbacks are useless. They don't mean anything. You know, we, we agree, because we have a society now, we all agree tacitly that the, the, the green piece of paper with the five on it is five times more valuable than the green piece of paper with the one on it. Par value is the same. They're both pieces of paper, right? So... Mm-hmm. In a in a barter community, which is what happens when cash goes away, well, not everybody has. You know, if, if I want to buy a bench or if I want a coat from somebody who has a coat, what am I going to give it? I don't, you know, if, if I don't have those skills. So ammunition becomes the currency, and the people are paid in bullets, and it really doesn't matter. The I guess if, if, if I'm carrying a 22, 22 is more valuable to me than, you know, some 308 larger, larger bullet. But the idea is even if somebody's got thousands of rounds of ammunition, this is set in West Virginia. I'm living in West Virginia. Trust me, a thousand rounds is nothing. Um, but having more is better than having less. So they have agreed that ammunition is the form of currency. That's how you, you 
pay for things. So, you know, I, you, I go to, I don't know, it, it just, you, you, you kind of figure it out. If, if in, there's one group in the, um, in the book, they've got a wine collection. Mm. And they don't have a lot of other skills, but they have a wine collection. So they open up a bar. And you don't need a permit to open up a bar in ortho because who's going to approve the permit? Uh, so, you know, it's, it's just trying to explore the ways that society will find a way. You know, it's to all, all it takes is leadership, calm leadership that listens uh, more than they talk. Uh, wouldn't that be a thrill? Um, and, and they hear and they find compromise. There's always a way to solve a problem. You just have to look at it from the right direction. You know what's really scary is that if they used ammunition today as a way to pay things, I'd be afraid <laughs> that so many people would have guns. <laughs> I was like I was saying, like, you know, and this morning there was like another shootout in another school, whatever. So every every day my niece is in, she's taking criminology. She's a genius, my girl. The other one's taking anatomy. Another one is taking math because I said go back to school because music isn't going to, you know, we never know. I call them every day to make sure they're okay because they have to go in. And, you know, when you're going online, that's one thing when you're doing remote, but when they're going into the school, their aunt gets nervous, and they're in Florida. So that that worries me a lot. So you must have done research. When you did research in this novel, what did you uh, focus on? The, the research, really, truthfully, was, was more about playing the game of what if. Yeah. Um, I established, I have my background back in the day. Um, I was in the defense industry and I was, you know, I called it the mass murder business at the time. Um, so I, I have a, a familiarity with all of that. And the Jonathan Grave books have, uh, have introduced me to a lot of tactics and strategy and that kind of thing that uh, the research that I've done there. So the re, it's mostly crossover stuff. I've actually had to do research. You know, how do you, what you grow in the summer? How do you, keep it nutritious in February, uh, which is kind of cool. In fact, the, um, this will be my first year, this spring will be my first year of actually having a real garden. Um, oh, nice. With, like, a real big garden. We're not talking window box here. We're talking probably a quarter acre. And uh, I look forward to that. All I know is that I, I had a cactus plant for about 20 years, and the poor thing is dying, but I just look at a plant and it just goes, the poor thing. So I try not to buy plants, except if they're fake. Then they have a, then they have a shot. I mean, that, yeah, it's, it's really sad. <laughs> so how and why did you create the final scene? It's controversial and might create some very interesting discussion and talking points. How did you create that without telling anybody what it is? Well, it's supposed to be controversial. It's you know. It's oh, good! I got the, it right. Yay! <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a, a. I don't know who. Going back to my college years, there's the phrase the social contract, and I forget who, which of the forefathers or or great philosophers talked about it. But you know, we all owe each other something, and as, as he called it the social contract. Uh, I, in my view, it means. Um, Kindness, and if it's not kindness, then stay out of my way. Uh, I mm-hmm. will stay out of your way if you stay out of my way. Uh, my stuff is my stuff. Your stuff is your stuff. And, and my family, God help you. I mean, God help anybody who 
threatens my family. And, uh, and that's what these, these folks in uh, Appleton is the other town up, up the road, uh, the folks who attack ortho uh, threaten all of that. And it, it falls to Victoria to mete out the justice. What is, I mean, she's rational and she's kind. She can be harsh. She can be, uh, and, and, it, and it falls to her to, um, to make the call. And she does. She was really in a hard, between a rock and a hard place sometimes. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. Considering well, she, that's the point. considering you know, they that's could the, have told her to go, to go suck wind, they didn't have to listen to her. Seriously. Exactly. Her position is is appointed or is, is by consensus. Um, she is judge and jury and mayor and uh, county commissioner and you know, all those things for this little town. Uh, she's the one that has put together within the book, she's put together the clothing committee. Kids are going to grow. So on, on day one, you've got a closet full of clothes that fit your kids. And, obvi- and maybe you probably have a closet full of clothes that they've outgrown. But where are you going to get the clothes that they need to grow into? Where are you going to get that from other people who have outgrown mm. their stuff? Somebody has to organize that. And Victoria works with the community to find somebody who's willing to do that. And, so that, and, and their payment is in the ammunition not for the value of ammunition for shooting people or anything else. It's just because that's what has value. And they can go and after she's organized the clothing, she can go and buy a drink from the, the wine collection up the street. That's even better. So there's one more character that hmm, is Pritchard. What about him? How did you create him? Well, he's, he's the um, get the antagonist. He's the writerly work for it. He's um, yeah. he's a guy that is he's the bad guy in the story, but I yeah, pride I myself in my books to have bad guys who think that they're the good guys. You know, Pritchard has uh, a mm. team. You know, his he's the leader of this this National Guard group, and he has a responsibility to feed them, and he's going to go about it his way, which is to take the stuff from others, and as word leaks out about his sort of draconian methods, uh, word leaks back out to Ortho, Victoria and her team is with, well, what do we do? Um, do we let them live and let live? Do we go and we try to uh, attack them before they attack us? Or what, what are we going to do? And Pritchard uh, is, is asking the same questions with, with his team. And, uh, and he acts first. And his, his mission is to feed his people, but he's going to do it not through cooperation, not through earning it, uh, but through violence. And uh, it kind of sets up the final third of the book. Without saying the verdict, how did you, some people are going to say it's fair. Some people will say it's unfair. Some people will say what you decided to meet out as a punishment wasn't fair. How did you come up with that? Because that, that was interesting. That was actually tough. Um, I went round and round uh, in in my mm-hmm. head. I, I I talked to the board of directors between my eyes, and mm-hmm. it just it mm-hmm. seemed it seemed right. And I I know it's going to be controversial, and I hope it it's is. controversial. You know, one of the things I I would love I've never done a book club book before, and 
and in my mind, that's what the Crimson Phoenix series is. You know, I think I think there's a lot of meat here for people to read, and um, they call it Crimson Phoenix series, Blue Fire, Crimson Phoenix, Blue Fire, and then White Smoke. I, I think there's a lot of fodder to um, to discuss how this applies in reality. Now, what I write is pure entertainment. Like I said, I don't write politics. I don't write social commentary. But I, I think there are – I have heard from readers that, that they ask themselves certain questions about their own preparedness and what am I willing to do and what am I not willing to mm-hmm. do. Uh, my mom was always one. I grew up in the Cold War era, and my mom always used to say in D.C. area, for that matter um, – she said if, if it came to war, she wanted to go and, and put her lawn chair in the front yard and, and just be the first to go. And that always bothered me. You know, that is so not me. Um, mm. It would suck. It would really, really suck. But I'd want to be around for the adventure and, and see what happens next. And so this is kind of a story, a principle of a story or a thread of a story that's been knocking around in my head for a long time. And uh, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of how it's come out. I, I, you know, it's funny. My mother, <laughs> my mother was a trip, and I, oh God, um, my mother always believed in giving to other people, even even if we didn't have. And she always said, you know, somebody needs something, you need to get, you need to help them, even as even as simple as if somebody was having trouble in school, and I was an A student, my mother would say, not everybody can afford a notebook, not everybody can do this, so. Give the, give somebody you know something that they need, and I looked at her and go, okay, you know. After a while, I would say to her, Mom, what about the fact that I need it? You'll get another, you'll get another one or whatever. She's always been like that. It was really weird. So, what what is next for these people? What are you writing next? I can't wait to get it already. Um, well, white smoke is going. There's there's a, a pretty significant. Um, the plot point in the in the uh, annex in the bunker, it's mm. it's it's partially resolved, and I want to resolve it a little bit more. And and Victoria has work to do in uh, in, in Bill. She, you can't just have an Eden. You can't have a, a single safe place that is surrounded by violent places. You have to somehow pacify the surrounding areas in order to have security that is viable. Um, you know, the best defense is a good offense, but that's fine in theory. But in reality, you can't have, you can't be surrounded by hungry people who don't have stuff and who are winter is coming and, and they're going to be freezing and they're going to become desperate and it will fall to Victoria to figure out a way um, how to, how to, fix all of that and uh, at the same time fend off the violent forces that are still out there. Are they going to have, is this world going to stay that way? In other words, they're never going to be able to have any kind of communication or phone or anything like that? Or is it I just going to no stay idea. that way? <laughs> have, Which means you're no not going to have to, you're going to have to write a fourth and a fifth one somehow. Well, and I'm going to do that. This is this is sort of a big experiment to me, and ultimately, it's a, really, um, it's good writing books. Writing books is a business, and uh, Kensington, my publisher, has has been gracious. We're good for three books. You know, this three book arc, 
And if people love it and they and they buy them and it goes well, then sure, absolutely continue to write them. And if if they don't, then you know maybe not. Maybe try something else. But uh, I, I'm continuing with the Jonathan Graves series. So I'm still doing one of those every year. Uh, in fact, Lethal Game comes out in uh, July, late late June actually. And uh, well, who so, do I ask so for that one? I would, one, I would love person? to hang more stories. Excuse me. Who do I ask for that one? The same publicist? Yeah, the same publicist. I can annoy her. That's okay. I'm doing very good at annoying people. It's fun. Oh, she's great. She doesn't get annoyed. Is she she doesn't get annoyed she at is me. great. She's not going to get annoyed at you. <laughs> no, I'm getting people out of out of the woodwork. I mean, really, I'm getting authors that are really you know pretty high up there, and I go like, "You want me to read that? Really? <laughs> so, oh my God." I mean, just in the last five days, I got ten requests. Thank God the postman only brought three today, and not not ten. I mean, forget it. But I got the David Rosenthal book. I go, "Are you kidding me? I didn't know I was getting that." But where can everybody get both series so that everybody goes and buys them? And of course, I'll put the link out well, in about can, two minutes. You can always on start Facebook. at my website. You always start at my website, johngillstrap.com, and that will send you not only to the book pages but to my YouTube channel and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, all of the major booksellers are, are going to have these things. Uh, in fact, Crimson Phoenix, the first, just came out in paperback, I think, a month ago, maybe two months ago. So um, it's, it's, it's out there to, to, to be bought. And, of course, there are the online stores. Which, But, you know, if you've got a local bookstore, go to your local bookstore. This is, they've always had a hard time making a go of it, and, and this COVID nonsense has really, really pummeled them. So if you have a local bookstore, go, please use them. What we have here is, is a Barnes & Noble, and unfortunately the local bookstores died. It's really it's horrible. We used to have just one little one um, in Tarrytown, and that closed a long time ago, too. So, you know, Barnes & Noble is still here. Unfortunately, um, all the other ones are not here anymore. It's sad. And basically, when I, I don't have, I, fortunately for what I do, I don't have to buy anything. They just send it. Yeah. And you know what's you know what's really weird is that I get the emails for the request to interv- to review the book, and they'll send me the PDF. I said, and what would you like me to do with that? I can't read on my phone. I get eye strain. And five minutes later, we, they say, don't worry, we got a print copy for you. <laughs> I'm like, okay, sure, yeah. no problem. And most of the time, they you know once in a while they actually print it out. And I go like, oh my God, they had to print this out. Yeah, but this this is fun. John, do you do panel shows ever? Because I've got a few ideas for panel shows coming up in August. Sure, absolutely. Oh, good. I don't. I, I don't do the I, normal I, stuff. I'm sorry that you didn't get a chance. This, this, you know what I did in January? I didn't realize that you would have been perfect for that. It's called the Last Line. We did. We did a panel with Charles Salzberg and Dick Belsky and a whole bunch of people talking about the last line of a novel and how it sort of sets the stage if they're going to write another one based on that. It was scary. But I'm doing one in um, – this might actually fit you – doing one in April with four other people. We're talking about how the setting of the story is educational and teaches people something. So that, that – that, yeah, <laughs> it's April 7th if you want to join the, the the wacko group of people. Let me see who is it. Yeah, I have never had – yeah, this is going to be fun. Um, Steve Harmon and Charles Salzberg – and Alan Topol, 
and I don't remember the fourth one is there somewhere and it I have, I have a good time. I like to do things that are not that are not the same, you know, that are different. So if you'd like to join it, let me know because I can just add another person. Yeah, it's Reese Hirsch, Alan Topol, Emma Horton, who wrote uh, The Dark. Her book is about um, Antarctica and Steve Harms. And this is about Guatemala. And Alan is about everywhere in the world. So I thought that may be yours because yours deals with a world that's different so let me know if you want to join us, and I will send you the sure. questions. Sure, I'll, I'll do anything. I, I enjoy. Okay, then I will let you know. Like it's April seventh at ten, and it'll be fun. And Emma Horton, I've never interviewed her before, but I read the book, and it's about Antarctica and these stations. And I learned a lot about how people have to survive there. It's interesting. So everybody, it's a beautiful day outside, but do something that I do every single day. Say something nice to somebody. Say a kindness to people because we're forgetting with this pandemic that being kind is really wonderful. And maybe then the pandemic will take a hike because it's negative. So, John, stay safe, and I will send you the questions. Everybody have a great day, and bye.